You're listening to Ready to Real Estate, a TREB podcast. Hear stories, uncover insights, and tune into interviews on key issues that impact realtors and all of us. Join us as we discover how people, properties, and communities all come together to build the future of real estate. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Ready to Real Estate. I'm your host, Jason Mercer. Even if this is your first time tuning into the show, you're no doubt aware of the supply issues driving housing affordability challenges in the greater Toronto area. It's an area of focus for TREB, and we continue to advocate for ways to increase housing supply in our region and even the broader Greater Golden Horseshoe. But the supply issue is not just impacting the Greater Golden Horseshoe. Recently, a Canada-British Columbia expert panel on the future of housing supply and affordability released a report addressing the supply issue. And subsequently, the Ryerson Centre for Urban Research and Land Development released a report earlier this month that examined the panel's findings through a GTA plus Hamilton or GTHA lens. Now their report is called the Holy Grail, Accelerating Housing Supply and Affordability by Improving the Land Use Planning System. And here to discuss some of the challenges to land use planning outlined in the report and the recommendations to overcome them are CUR researchers, Dave Amborski and Frank Clayton. Thank you very much to both of you for joining us today. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's jump right in. I mean, you know, we've discussed this a lot over the, the, the last few years, and, and certainly the CUR is, 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 uh, um, has, has participated in a lot of TREB events and, and you know, have addressed some of these issues surrounding housing supply. And so you know, it's great to have you here again. And, and there's been a lot of speculation about the causes behind the rising cost of housing. And you know, we've talked about different issues like foreign investment, uh, speculation, and, and what have you. But it's clear, I think, over time, um, that, that supply is the real underlying problem. And, and both in the expert panel and, and, and your subsequent report, um, you talk about the unresponsiveness of the existing land use planning system um, you know, to quickly um, start to account for you know, rising population growth and the need for both ownership and, uh, and, and rental housing. So maybe I'll go alphabetically and, and turn to David first. Maybe you can sort of give us a, a sort of a high level view of, of where you're coming from uh, in the report. Well, thanks, Jason. We've been wrestling with supply issue for a long period of time. You know, we were talking about supply being our problem on housing affordability going back to when the new growth plan came into place. We kept saying there's a supply shortage of ready sites in Greenfield and also uh, zoning constraints in, in, in the infill areas. So we've been looking at this for a long period of time and our research has reflected that. Um, you know, Frank started, did research on a number of different pieces and so have I. And uh, this kind of culminated now in being reinforced by some of the things that came out by this BC study. So maybe Frank can make some opening comments as well. Sure, and maybe on that, Frank, just sort of thinking about uh, maybe we can sort of juxtapose uh, the findings relative to, 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 to the British Columbia sort of case versus what we see in the GTHA and sort of thinking about where, you know, there may be some differences, but also similarities in, in what we've seen over time. Okay, uh, there are, are a lot of similarities between the Vancouver region and the Toronto region. Uh, first of all, we're both uh, have the dubious reputation of being among the most affordable major metropolitan areas around the world. We're on the top list every year of a, a demographic uh, listing of uh, city or metropolitan areas by affordability. Um, we have the same basic problems. We both have uh, fairly, you know, Vancouver's smaller, but it has uh, rapid growth. We have rapid growth. Uh, we both have geographic constraints. We have the lake uh, here in Vancouver has even more uh, 
uh, geographic constraints because it's got the mountains and the, and the, uh, the water. Um, but we both have, according to a CMHC study done a few years ago, uh, we both are uh, unique in that our housing supply is less responsive uh, to changes in demand and prices than other areas across Canada and other, and certainly other areas across the continent. And that, that's the, that's the, you know, that this makes the, the two very, very similar. We also have the same problem about, uh, we have uh, uh, in, the, in our built up urban areas, basically the city of Toronto, the city of Vancouver, uh, we have huge areas of, 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 uh, of land, which, are, are, uh, which are, have single detached houses on them. And uh, we call it the yellow belt here in, in Toronto, right. but, uh, and they, they can't be touched. I mean, historically you didn't redevelop you know, you can't, couldn't tear down three houses and put in a low-rise apartment building. So the, there are some similarities and there's some, some differences, but both, really, both of us have the same kind of onerous, uh, uncertain, costly planning systems. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the, the concept of the yellow belt and, and obviously, you know, one of the sort of the buzzwords that's, that's come out of that discussion over the last few years is this, is this concept of the, of the missing middle. So, you know, trying to find ways to, I guess, bridge that gap between, you know, those traditional single family neighborhoods that we see a lot of in, in the city of Toronto and, and then, you know, the condominium apartment um, type homes so that, you know, people can kind of move through a housing continuum, a more diverse housing continuum, um, over time. And, you know, we talked about this quite a bit. And I know, you know, through Treb's polling that we've done since since 2015, in conjunction with Ipsos, you know, we see that, you know, people who are intending on purchasing a home, in a lot of cases, their preferred home type is not necessarily a condominium apartment, especially when they get out of the, you know, their, 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 their first home. And yet, that's been a, a tough nut to crack. And so David, maybe uh, back to you, just sort of thinking about, um, you know, the, the, the missing middle and, and the ability or inability, I guess, to, to, to bring on a greater diversity of housing supply. How, how is that sort of concept and, and maybe the governance surrounding that uh, addressed in the BC report? And, and what's your sort of take on it from, from the CUR perspective? Well, well, there's two issues. One, one, of course, is to higher density along the avenues, but also in this so-called yellow belt. And part of that has to do with the zoning restrictions that are in place. I mean, that wasn't touched as part of the First official plan put into place to get the councillors to buy into that as you want know, to protect the neighborhoods. So we're kind of living with that today. So part of the response to that is making zoning more flexible to allow for higher density development. And this has been something that's been done in a number of cities across North America that face these kinds of issues. In the U.S., it's done uh, in Seattle and Portland and Minneapolis. And also in several states have looked at this more comprehensively, both the state of California and also Connecticut. And the best example we have here is the city of Ottawa. Their R4 zoning now permits higher density development. So Ottawa is the one city that's moved forward a bit on that. But again, we haven't moved forward on that yet in the city of Toronto. I think that's something that needs to be looked at more, more carefully. One of the ways this actually could be addressed by a higher level of government is provide incentives for municipalities to do that. At least the first, uh, the first cut in uh, Biden's infrastructure bill had in their provisions that certain cities would get have an incentive to change their zoning. They get certain infrastructure funding if, in fact, they deregulate some of the zoning to make higher density development and affordable housing more of a priority. So we might look at incentivization of this as well at some level. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point. And just sort of thinking about, you know, I mean, I see you are has done a couple of reports in the past for, for, for TREB and, and, and you certainly pointed to case studies in, in the United States. And, uh, but even closer to home, this, this Ottawa example, it's interesting because, you know, I've often heard, you know, the, the idea of <clears throat> bringing on mid-density housing in, in, in some neighborhoods, particularly the Yellow Belt neighborhoods, is almost a sort of a third rail issue, especially when we have sort of a four year uh, election cycle. So how did they how did they kind of how did that come to pass in, in, in the Ottawa context, whereas, you know, it, it hasn't been able to really um, come to fruition in the city of Toronto to any degree? I, I don't know the details of the politics of Ottawa. I think there has been some pushback and some issue because, of course, you run into the NIMBYism issue. And right. uh, NIMBYism is a problem, not only here uh, and across Canada, but also other places. It's kind of interesting, the planning academics uh, who always have promoted public participation now are writing papers on the dark side of public participation, NIMBYism. <laughs> I know there's an important paper written on that recently in San Francisco that has very high housing prices as well, recognizing there has to be ways to overcome this. And of course, you see some recent cases here of this kind of thing raising its, uh, raising its head in this area. We saw, I saw an article in the Star talking about people in Liberty Village don't want more dense development in Liberty Village. You hear about the um, bus rapid transit line is proposed to go from Scarborough to Oshawa. And the people in Highland Creek don't want that in their community because they're not going to use it. So we have to find ways to get around an NIMBYism and have more, more broad-based public participation. The uh, one thing, the one thing, the uh, BC report, expert panel report came out with, they 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 want to get public participation moved away from individual projects because whenever there's a project plan next door to you, people are going to oppose it and they're going to go to council and that's all council hears from. Council doesn't hear about the public good, the need for more housing. So what the plan, panel has proposed is that public participation be upfront. You, you, before you rezone a whole area or you, you make changes to a whole area, you have the public participation. And then it's basically a matter of right because the zoning's in right. place that people can build whatever they want. So it, it won't be at the very end of the process where it, where it is right now, where everything gets hung up. It'll be back earlier. And New York City does this uh, in, in, a, uh, in a way, they, they take a whole neighborhood, a very large area, uh, and they get the public participation at the beginning, and then you have a, as a right to, to build. You know, if the demand's there for a, a, a low-rise apartment building beside a couple of single-attached houses, and the area is uh, pre-zoned for that, then go ahead and build it. You, no, nothing's stopping you. And do you think something like that? that is, sorry, go ahead, David. I'm sorry, part of that's been picked up by what we've talked about provincially is a planning permit or a development permit system where you do all the consultations up front early on in the process but it hasn't gotten a lot of traction in our Ontario setting. The city at one point looked at it several years ago. We actually had a seminar at it, but then it got, it got pushed back and didn't go any further. You know, it's interesting just thinking of, you know, different uh, um, governments, uh, constructs, I guess, in Canada, because you think about, you know, the city of Toronto and it's a, a standard sort of ward-based system, um, you know, which, which obviously in, involves, you know, local residents and uh, interfacing with their, with their councillors. And a lot of times there's that, uh, there's that pushback on, on any kind of change. Whereas in Vancouver, you have, you know, more of an at-large uh, type of system yet, um, you know, we're, we're, we seem to be facing, you know, similar issues in terms of bringing supply online and having pushback from, from local residences. And so even with those differences in governance, um, is, it, is this really an initiative that has to, you know, come from the, the provincial level? And I'd be interested in hearing both your takes as we're moving towards a provincial election as to, you know, how that could be uh, worked into, 
you know, uh, a policy outlook for different parties. Yeah, the, uh, can I just add to that? One thing about Ottawa uh, is different than both Vancouver and uh, Toronto. Uh, the city of Ottawa is basically the metropolitan area. So the city of Ottawa Council has a responsibility for both the, the existing built-up area, but also the expansion, the greenfield areas. Mm. And they're taking much more a liberal point of view on uh, uh, small L liberal, that is, point of view uh, on expanding the urban boundaries, even expanding the urban boundaries. And they're doing a lot better job uh, on, on keeping, you know, right now, uh, housing um, prices are going up across the continent. And Ottawa is not a, you know, is, has that too. But, but basically, housing has been much more affordable in Ottawa over the last uh, decade or two because they, uh, the, the city is, you know, the council is responsive to the whole region, both you know, uh, greenfields, suburban and, and urban. And they, they're taking the responsibility seriously, it seems. Whereas here, city of Toronto cares only about the city of Toronto, Mississauga cares about Mississauga and so on. So we need, that's why we need the province involved because we don't have a regional you know, level of government. You know, it's interesting when I, you know, started applying school in, in, in 2000 at UT and, and, you know, we were talking about governance and, you know, the amalgamation was only a few years old at that point for the, for the city of Toronto, but there's certainly the argument that, you know, the amalgamation, even at that scale was too small at the time, just because of, you know, where growth was going to take place. And, and obviously a lot of economies of scale around service delivery and that. So, you know, David, from, from, from that standpoint and thinking about what, you know, different political actors or, or, or parties at the at the provincial level would would, would look like. Do you, like, do you foresee um, as we move towards the provincial election that we'll be talking and you know more about governance or more about you know uh, different or change in responsibilities from a from a planning framework standpoint? I don't think we will. We're pretty well stuck in with what we have, and that would be a big move to go into an election without broad consultation. But I think you know part of the thing we have to look at is have a regional kind of monitoring system, looking at land supply comprehensively. Um, go, going back, you now what we have basically in place is the growth plan, which has started out as a smart growth initiative. So it does represent right. smart growth and urban containment. If you go back and look in the US, uh, their smart growth history, uh, the, the poster child there, of course, is Portland. And one of the things Portland has done, and this has been written about extensively by um, Garrett Knapp, who's head of the US Smart Growth Center, is that Portland had a metropolitan region land information system. And he attributes that to being the success of why that has been successful in Portland, because you're monitoring the land. If you're constraining the land too much, you look at ways of expanding the land supply. And he started writing about this in 2003. He's been up here a couple of times doing presentations at our center, and he's spoken to the province, the growth secretary about it, telling them we need to monitor it, but they haven't. So I think we need to move in that direction if the provinces, that's been part of the BC study, looking at a regional understanding of monitoring land supply, I think that's something that can be done by this government if they want to, and be done in a shorter move towards that direction by integrating, as Ottawa has, supply in the greenfield and in the infill areas of the city. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And Frank, certainly when the when the fair housing plan came out uh, um, under the previous Liberal government, well, you know, one of the initiatives that they had initially in there was to, to look at ways that they could, I guess, track land supply, uh, um, you know, more accurately and, and, and perhaps with a more forward looking view. Um, but, you know, based on your report, it seems like there's still work to be done uh, <laughs> to to improve that and, 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 and have a more integrated approach like, like David was describing for Portland. 
we we are just looking at uh, the the land supply for the provincial policy statement that municipalities are supposed to keep a minimum of at least three years supply of ready to go land for residential housing by different types of residential housing uh, for, within the greater Toronto and Hamilton area only the city of Oshawa region of York and city of Hamilton actually have current data on that that short term land supply. And we don't, we don't, since 2003, we have no idea uh, in the Toronto region how much land is on the market ready to go. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. When I was at CMHC, and, and that's going back more uh, than a decade now, um, you know, there had been that partnership uh, between the CMHC and the province where they had the, uh, the, the residential land inventory. Um, and, you know, there were attempts to kind of get it back off the ground, but, it, you know, it, it involved, you know, so many groups. And I think at the time, you know, with, uh, with smart growth and later places to grow coming in, it was just sort of a, another layer uh, that I think, you know, municipalities and, 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 and people at the province as well just felt that, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was another layer and it would be difficult to collect all that information. But I think you're right. Like, at this point, we kind of don't know what we don't know. Um, or, you know, for in terms of land supply in, in most parts of the greater Golden Horseshoe, and, and we probably need to get back there. So how would it work? Like, how would that construct work in, in terms of uh, in terms of some sort of, you know, modern land supply tracking framework? It's, it's, it's very easy now because every municipality has a has a, a electronic system, a, you know, digital system, electronic system, and they, they monitor their applications. And they amount to what's going on. So I just don't know why they won't follow what the what they've been asked to do by the province since uh, 1993 <laughs> to to monitor their short term land supply. Right now, every municipality, all the major or the upper tier uh, regional municipalities in the city of Toronto and Hamilton and so on, are are monitoring their or looking at their land supply for the next 30 years, <laughs> because under the growth plan, the municipal uh, um, the comprehensive municipal uh, plans that they have to do, they have to do this. So they're all doing that, but nobody's looking at the short-term land supply. Very few are looking at the short-term land supply. And that's the critical element for, for housing right now. To get our supply up, you have to have land. You can't build housing without land serviced and ready to go. Serviced, right. loaned, ready to go. So, so uh, we have a shortage, no question, of uh, uh, with the limited data I got. We have a shortage of single and semi uh, land somewhat more townhouse land and we have lots of apartment land so we got to get that lower lower density and part of the way of doing it of course is through the yellow yellow belt but only part because we need so many housing units uh, so the numbers extra strom uh, uh, um that we need for uh, to build in the, in the greater toronto area over the next uh, 10 years so many housing units we, we need greenfield lands and and uh, urban urban you know redeveloping urban areas and just to underscore Frank's point about the short-term land supply, that's so important because the length of time it takes for greenfield sites to get the approvals process and actually build units. That can be as long as 10 years or probably a minimum of six years. So that's not going to turn around quickly. So you have to monitor that to make sure there's enough land in the pipeline uh, to make sure you can meet the, meet the supply needs. Also, those numbers are supposed to be reported to the province on an annual basis, which they could integrate, but they're not. They could have a standard, a standard reporting format like the FIR, like a financial information attorney have to report annually right. to be able to, to able to aggregate those numbers and, and see what's going on. 
That's a really good point around the FIR and how you can mirror uh, something like that. When you mentioned also service land, I mean, we talk about land that's designated for, for residential purposes, but I know with both of you in the past, uh, you know, we've also discussed uh, the issue of employment lands. I, I mentioned third rail issues earlier on in our, in our discussion today, but, um, you know, would you agree that there's, you know, opportunities for, for residential and obviously mixed use development that we're missing out on because of, uh, you know, a, a, a more rigid uh, approach uh, to employment lands. Like I'd argue there's a lot of points around the city of Toronto and even broader GTA where the highest and best use is not the type of employment uh, uh, land or, or, or uses that we're, that we're seeing right now. And there could be some opportunities for, for mixed use development, especially as we're building more transit infrastructure and what have you. Uh, I agree with you. We've done studies on that as well about the taking uh, uh, marginal, I call marginal or less priority employment lands and converting it. And we've been doing it. Uh, we did a study, one of our first studies at the center was uh, the, uh, out the ward, Warden subway station, Warden Woods it was called. And, uh, and that, that was a huge development of mainly townhouses. And of course we have the meatpacking uh, area on the St. Clair and um, Keel right. area. And and even the the uh, the uh, Portlands that was they were industrial lands and they are converted but there's opportunities for more land uh, because the type of employment being created in the region now is more focused on an office rather than employment now we do have uh, uh, you know the big box uh, distribution centers becoming a big big part of what's going on but they want to be generally out, out in the you know suburbs closer to the expressway systems or the um, intermodal rail uh, systems. Uh, so, so there are, you know, places like Mississauga and the uh, city of Toronto, which are the older, older municipalities, they, they have very large industrial areas that some of those could be redesignated for, for residential, you know, uh, the kind of housing we're talking about for missing middle townhouses, low rise, sack townhouses, low rise apartments and so on. What are your thoughts on employment lands, David? Well, uh, I, I think those have to be looked at and reviewed comprehensively. I'm sorry, I missed part of your question because I faded out on the, on the, on the Zoom. Um, but they, they can be used. Um, most municipalities over overzealous in the amount of land they for employment purposes. So I think you have to look at those strategically and carefully, the kinds of lands you need, I think, need to be reviewed over time. So I, I agree with Frank. Well, I, I think... You know, in, in terms of what we talked about today and certainly what's in your report and also the, 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 the report that dealt more closely with, with BC, um, it, it kind of underpins a, an issue that's been compounding, you know, over the long term and certainly over the uh, over the last decade. And I think one of the things that was you know, striking about your analysis is, is sort of looking at, you know, the, the shortfall of, uh, of housing that we have right now. And, and you know, to me, you know, that really underlines why this needs to be dealt with sooner rather than later, because as we're moving out of the pandemic and we're going to see stronger recovery, part of that recovery is going to be a real ramping up or escalation in, uh, in immigration. And, you know, we're going to see, you know, more households looking for either ownership or, or rental housing. So maybe as we're getting close to time here, maybe give me a sense. And, and so people understand how important this issue is, you know, what does that shortfall look like today? And, 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 and what happens if we don't address this issue quickly moving forward? Okay, uh, just to put it in context, Hempson Consulting did work uh, forecast for the province uh, 2020 last, last year. And they're forecasting that we need in the greater Toronto Hamilton region, 50,000 new housing units per year in the next, in the next decade. Um, so that's a big challenge in itself. But if we're, as B, the BC study uh, panel report shows, 
if we're going to do something about affordability, we can't just meet projected household growth. We've got to have a surplus. We got to get rid of some of this backlog. Uh, and so we really need about 25% more housing units in that. So it's a massive undertaking to do that. But we really, to bring the overall uh, uh, affordability structure uh, or at least stabilize it for so housing prices don't keep, keep going up more much more than inflation rate, we have to increase the supply more than household growth. We got to have increased vacancy rates. We got to have people have choices. So there's competition in the marketplace. And that's a huge challenge that really nobody is looking at right now here in Ontario. Yeah. But I kind of review this as kind of like a problem of deferred maintenance or a deficit yeah. from the budget last year. If you had a budget a deficit in your municipal budget last year, you have to make it up in this year. So that unmet demand from previous years needs to be added to what we have to add to the supply now to get back to a balanced balanced market and to mitigate increases in house prices. So we have to have that, that affordability uh, adjustment that you talked about in the BC study added in to reflect what, what demand hasn't been met in recent years. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And, and we're really seeing a compound now just sort of bringing it back to, to, to Treb is that, you know, over time, if you're not seeing supply keep up with demand, it starts to trickle down into the into the resale market where we have a scenario now where we have this, you know, persistent uh, lack of inventory where, you know, once again, we're talking about, you know, inventory levels, not in terms of months of inventory, which is a pretty standard metric, but instead we're talking about weeks of inventory, even days <laughs> yeah. of inventory in, in, in some neighborhoods around uh, the GTA. And so, you know, with that in mind, I want to thank you both for, for coming on the podcast today and even more so for, for doing your review and report for the, for the BC Canada study. Uh, Cause I think it's really important to get this, this information out there and, and point out that, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, huge steps that you need to, uh, to, to, you know, move the ball forward on, on housing supply. It's, it's also things like just, you know, uh, putting in place systems to, to measure and understand what you need and, 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 and where the gaps are. So again, thank you very much uh, to both of you for, for joining us today. You're very welcome, Jason. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Treb's Ready to Real Estate podcast on Apple. Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to all of you for joining us and we'll see you next time. That's it for us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media and visit our website, treb.ca. That's T-R-R-E-B dot C-A to find market insights and more. This has been another episode of Ready to Real Estate, and thank you for tuning in.